You don't know how much I appreciate that, brother. My wife just will not get a palm branch and fan me with it. I don't know why. You know? I tried the old Catholic argument that Solomon's wife probably did it to them, but she didn't listen. So... I told her, I said, a good wife fans her husband, feeds him grapes. She threw dog food at me. I don't know. Well, we're up on baptism again this week, and this is our fifth installment of our series. Last week, we covered Roman Catholic baptism, and uh, several weeks before that, three weeks before that, we covered definitions of baptism. And this week, we're on the negative again. The next week will be our last week of the, in the series. We'll be on a positive note for most of the message. But tonight we're looking at Protestant infant baptism, which, as I said before, is different than Catholic infant baptism. They baptize babies, but for, the, for a different reason altogether. And I think it's important to know the difference between the two, because I know pastors who try to lump them all together, and it's just not fair to do that. Um, Roman Catholics baptize for... The purpose of saving babies, for infusing them with grace, the first step of grace, and then they act upon that grace to get more grace and more grace and more grace and eventually get enough grace where they can call themselves uh, saved, kind of, but then when they die, they still have to go to purgatory to pay for some of their sins because Jesus, according to the Catholic Catechism, imperfectly purifies them. And so how you get away with saying Jesus does anything imperfectly, I'll never know, but that's what the Catechism actually says. They are imperfectly purified. I don't intend to cover the baptism of every false church like I did Rome, but since Rome parades itself as the historic Christian church and a lot of the world sees Roman Catholics as Christians, I think it's important for us to demonstrate why we don't support their baptism. You know, you say, Pastor, would you rebaptize somebody who got saved out of Roman Catholicism? My answer is no, I wouldn't. I would baptize them because they're not baptized. Being baptized by an unsafe priest for the purpose of salvation is not biblical baptism. So it's not rebaptism. So tonight we're going to look at uh, infant baptism as it relates to Protestant churches. We need to understand that while in error on baptism, Protestants who are Orthodox don't baptize babies for the purpose of salvation. So what I'm saying is don't put lump all infant baptizers into one category and say they're all lost. No. Some are true Christians, just an error in their doctrine. As a Baptist, I don't baptize babies. I never will. Uh, not out of tradition, but out of conviction from the Bible. That, that is not the way we are to baptize one another. Those who would fall out of the category of Orthodox into apostate category, as Rome is in, all those would be unsaved. Jehovah's Witnesses. Mormons, Church of Christ, they all baptize for a different reason other than what the Bible teaches. So tonight we're going to look at why they do it, that is Protestants, and I want to answer the arguments they commonly use to baptize or sprinkle infants. I want to show that even Baptists fall into a similar error, believe it or not. I'm going to start by saying that I love my brothers and sisters who disagree with me on this issue. There's a lot of them. If you were to look at my Facebook friends, uh, I'd probably say, what'd you say, honey? Uh, 
roughly 60% would probably fall under Presbyterian infant baptizers. I have a lot of friends in the street preaching community who are Presbyterian or Anglican, and so they fall under the infant baptism, mode of baptism. I uh, fellowship with them, I preach alongside them, but I disagree with them. And it's okay to disagree with people that we still love. I believe you can be a pedo baptist and still be a Christian, but I do believe my friends are wrong about this doctrine. I believe they're wrong from a historical, a philosophical, and a scriptural basis. The practice of baptism is mentioned several times in the Bible. I find it strange that infant baptism is never mentioned at all. At all. I told you the story before. I was at a retreat with street preachers one time. And uh, it was the great irony of the trip was we had a guy, a guy who I love. He's a wonderful street preacher. A godly man, very kind and gentle. When he preaches on sin and judgment, I mean, he's rebuking people, but it sounds like he loves them so much when he does it. So much, I mean, love just drips off his words. But uh, he taught us on the doctrine of sola scriptura, which means by scripture alone. Later on that evening, we got into a baptism debate. Most of us there were Baptists in the group, and you know, so there was friendly debate going on back and forth. And finally, he put up his hands. He goes, "Let me just tell you guys, if the Bible alone is our standard, then you guys have the argument." I thought to myself, "Isn't that funny? You just taught tonight on Scripture alone, and yet you admit if Scripture alone is our standard." You're wrong. But because of your tradition, you won't turn from that. That's the dangerous tradition. We get into these traditions where we, we've always done it this way, we've always said it this way, and then you go to the Bible and say, the Bible did it well, that doesn't matter, we, we've always done it this way. We've always done it this way is not a good enough reason to do anything. When you stand before Christ, it's not going to work to say, well, Christ, that's the way we've always done it. He's going to say, is that the way I said to do it? That's the question. Is it the right way according to the Bible? To leave baptism of infants out of the Bible, especially with how prominent it is in churches today, is unthinkable. If, if it takes such a high priority among Protestant churches today, why does the Bible say nothing about it? The argument is made that no example of children being born to believing families is given in the Bible, right? So they'll say, well, the Bible doesn't talk about it because we don't see babies being born into families, and so we don't see them mention the baptism of the babies. That's a faulty argument. The problem with this point of view is that the Bible gives instructions on so many things. You realize it tells parents how to raise their children and never once tells them to baptize them? You understand that, right? Let's start in Ephesians chapter 4. Turn there. Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to turn a lot again tonight. Bear with me. Ephesians, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 6. 
that was my, my fault. Ephesians 6, 4. Paul says, And you fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Now, Paul's giving instructions to fathers of how to raise their children. Shouldn't baptism be included in that instruction? If indeed they're supposed, that's the first step of discipling your child, according to the Orthodox Protestant view, is they become part of the covenant community by baptism. Why is that not included? Go to Colossians 3.21. Paul has another chance to, to mention it. Colossians 3.21. The Bible says, Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. Again, no mention of baptizing them. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. Turn there. Paul is going to give the order of the family. Maybe we'll see it here. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. See, Earl's ahead of me. He's he's like, no, that's the answer, just no. He's not wrong, by the way. But we're looking at the passage anyways. 1 Corinthians 11, 3. Paul said, I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of of Christ is God. So here we have the order of the family. Christ, the husband, the wife, and of course the children fall into that. We see directions to the husband and wife in regards to their relationship. Turn to Ephesians 5, 22. Ephesians 5, 22. The Bible says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, he is the savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church, and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, and of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Directions to the husband and the wife. Did you catch the part about baptizing babies? No, I didn't either. Let's go to Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. We'll see the very similar directions. Actually, what? go to Titus 2, 2 1. I'll read you Colossians 3 18. It's just repetitive. He says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. I, again, I missed the part about baptizing babies. Colossians 2 1 through 8. Here, Paul's going to deal with the behavior of young men, old men, young women, and old women. Titus 2.1. But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine, that the aged men may be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, and charity, and patience, 
The aged women, likewise, that they be in behaviors becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to, to much wine, teachers of good things. They may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Young men, likewise, exhort to be sober-minded in all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. Did you catch the part about baptizing babies there? Me either. Me either. Let's move on. Colossians 4.1. Colossians 4.1. We're going to move on to... Listen, the Bible gets so involved in giving instructions to husbands, to wives, to children. Children obey your parents and the Lord. I didn't include that one. He gives instructions to husbands and wives in their relationship. He gives the order of the family, Christ, husband, wife, right? He gives all these things. He even gives instructions for servants and masters. Colossians 4.1, Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that you have a master in heaven. Go backwards, Colossians 3.22. 3.22. To the servants, he says, Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye servers as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. In all of these passages, we see no mention of baptizing their children. One would think, with the extent that instructions were given to so many people about so many things, surely this would be included somewhere in the New Testament. The New Testament writers give commands on many topics that pertain to life and the functioning of the church. We see commands to the husband, wives, children, and servants, yet no mention of sprinkling infants. We see commands to pastors, teachers, and deacons, yet no mention of sprinkling infants. We see commands concerning traveling preachers, lawsuits between believers, the Lord's Supper, head coverings, music, church service order, and the church discipline, and yet no mention of sprinkling infants. How can a doctrine so prominent in so many churches today go completely unmentioned within the bounds of the New Testament? Say, well, he didn't give instructions on that because he assumed they would do it. Wouldn't he assume a husband would love his wife? And a wife would love her husband? Wouldn't he assume a Christian master would be just and equal with his servant? And a Christian servant would serve from the heart? Of course he could be just as confident in that. But yet he mentions those anyways. The comparison for infant baptism is often made to circumcision. The difference is that Abraham was given directions concerning its practice, and it's mentioned often throughout the Old Testament. Some would argue that the early Christians were already familiar with the concept of circumcision, since baptism is, according to them, the new circumcision, so they didn't need to explain to them. Okay. A problem with that logic is the early church was the coming together of Jew and Gentile. The Gentiles would not have had understanding within the laws of circumcision. They would need it explained to them. And it's not explained to them. Because that was not a connection that was made by the apostles. So, if you remember, the, I may repeat myself several times, but in the Old Testament, the covenant people were who? Jews. Jews. 
It was ethnic. So anybody born into the Jewish nation was part of the covenant, whether they were believers or not. So every male was commanded to be circumcised as a sign of the covenant. And the Protestant today says, well, that sign was carried over to baptism in the New Testament. Again, the connection's never made in the Bible. And if you say, well, they didn't need to tell them because they knew already the Gentiles would need to tell them, and it's still not mentioned. The difference is the new covenant is not like the old covenant. Over and over again, it's called a better covenant. Do you know why it's a better covenant? One of the reasons? Everybody in the covenant is a believer. It's not ethnic. To join the covenant community, you do it by faith in Christ. Right? So it's not like the old covenant. It's different in its administration entirely than the old covenant. Let me back up a little bit now. Let's address baptism as a sign of the covenant. This is the primary defense for infant baptism. They have verses they use. We'll get to those in a minute. But their primary argument is philosophical. It's the same as circumcision. Okay. What is meant by covenant? God works through covenants. Covenants are promises. That's what they are. The word covenant means promise. For instance, God made a covenant with Noah after the flood in Genesis 9, 9 through 19. In this covenant, God promised never again to destroy the earth with a flood. So what did God do? He put a sign of the covenant, right? The rainbow. That whenever he saw the sign, he remembered the covenant and he fulfilled the terms of the covenant. God made a covenant with Abraham as well. In Genesis 12, 1 through 8, we see God promised to make of Abram a great nation and to give him land. We see this promise renewed in Genesis 13, 14 through 18. And then in Genesis 15, 1 through 6, we see God promise Abraham a seed. Genesis 15, 5. Go ahead turn there, 15, 5. Uh, Genesis 15, 5. Sorry about that. Trying to decide on the fly which ones have you turned to and which ones did not have you turned to, so we don't not here too late. It's already 9:30, so I don't want to go too much later. Genesis 15:5, and he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven, and tell the stars that thou be able to number them. And he said unto them, unto him, So shall thy seed be. In this passage, God tells Abraham he would have a seed as many as the stars of the sky. In a different place, he says, as many as the sand of the sea. Okay. By the way, I don't care what the dispensationalist wants to tell you, those aren't two different groups of people. Right? That's what dispensationalism is founded on, is there's a, a, an ethnic, earthly people, the sand of the sea, and there's a heavenly people, the stars of the sky. And so Israel is God's people, and then we're also God's people, but we're separate. No. God has one group of people, as many as the stars of the sky and the sand of the sea. It's the same analogy for the same group of people. It's innumerable, in other words. Okay, we need to remember that and establish that. The reason I say that is because we are those people, if we're saved. 
Go to Galatians 3.6. Galatians 3.6. If you hear a preacher talk about Abraham's earthly people and his heavenly people, turn off the TV, never turn it back on again. Or walk out of the church. That's not biblical. Okay? Galatians 3, 6. Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then, they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. Okay? When God said, In thee shall all nations be blessed, who was he talking about? He's not talking about the Jewish nation. He's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. He would bless all nations because all nations would come to him by faith. It's no longer an ethnic covenant community. It is a community of believers in Christ. Okay? We have to establish that early on. In Genesis 17, God renewed his covenant with Abraham. Abraham, Abraham, same person. And he instituted the sign of the covenant, which was circumcision. This was to apply to all males in Abraham's household, not just those of his seed, but of all that he bought or that became part of his family. The covenant with Abraham was by faith. When the Israelites refused to believe God and enter the promised land, they were cut off by their unbelief. Right? They stayed in the wilderness. They were cut off from the promised land by their unbelief. Circumcision, the sign of the covenant, stopped as well. You know why? Because they were in violation of the covenant. Can I just say, again, I don't mean to just keep picking on dispensationalism, but ethnic Jews, over that, that political nation over there, that's not God's chosen people. We are God's chosen people. Israel in the Bible, when they've been un- unbelieving, covenant-breaking, have never been under the blessing of God. So don't believe a politician when he tells you, we have to support whatever Israel does because I'll bless those that bless you and curse those that curse you. That is not what the Bible is talking about. Okay? The I will bless those that bless you and curse those that curse you is not Israel in view. Christ is in view there. I will bless those who bless Christ and curse those who curse Christ. But Israel, when they're covenant breaking, has never been God's covenant people throughout the scriptures. They didn't go to the promised land. They stopped the sign of the covenant. They wandered for 40 years in the wilderness till they all died off. Once they crossed Jordan to take the promised land, God ordered circumcision to begin again. Listen to Joshua 5.2. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make these sharp knives and circumcise again the children of Israel the second time. The reason is, the parents who were circumcised in Egypt, they're dead. And the, the children were not circumcised. They were not part of the covenant because they were outside the promised land. They were in unbelief. So now he's not circumcising the ones who were circumcised the first time again. He's circumcising the children who grew up to be adults now the first time. Okay? During the early days of the church, some sects of the Jews made the claim that circumcision being the sign of the covenant meant that a saved person must be circumcised. You guys know the argument. Galatians has written about it. There's a whole council in, in Acts 15, the Jerusalem council is held. Do the Gentiles have to be circumcised to be saved like we are? And the answer, of course, was no. No, they don't. 
Acts 15.1, a certain man which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. Paul especially took issue with this doctrine and wrote it in the book of Galatians. Peter also affirmed the sign of the covenant given to Abraham was not for the Gentiles. Acts 15 verse 8 says, And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. In other words, what Peter's saying there is, these uncircumcised Gentiles have no difference between them and us. We are one people. We are the same people, purified by faith. Not circumcision, faith. In these verses, Peter acknowledges there is no difference between the Jew and who believes and the Gentile who believes. All are children of Abraham. Circumcision was not the actual promise, but a sign of the promise. It pictured something, in other words. Go to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2. Circumcision pictured something. In verse 16, 2.16. We've only got 93 more scriptures to look at tonight, okay? Nothing at all, hardly, hardly anything. Colossians 2.16. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon or the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Circumcision falls under the same category as these holy days. It's a shadow. It's a type. It's not the substance. It points ahead to something else. Circumcision of the flesh was a type pointing to another kind of circumcision, one not by human hands, nor on physical flesh, but one by God on the heart of man. I go to Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. 30, verse 6. We see it mentioned as far back as the books of Moses. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, And the Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, that thou mayest live. So even as far back as the books of Moses, he said God's going to circumcise your heart. And there's a purpose to that circumcision, wasn't there? What was the purpose of the circumcision? To love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, that thou mayest live. It would change their hearts when God applied the circumcision. Remember that. That's important to what we're getting to here in a minute. Go to Ezekiel 36, verse 26. Ezekiel 36, 26. The Bible says, A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. So circumcision of the flesh was a type and shadow that pointed to a time in the future when God would circumcise the heart of his people. This is done when we're saved today. God circumcises the heart. He cuts away the hard heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh, a living, beating heart. This is what Paul is saying when he says, you who were dead and trespasses and sins, has he quickened, made alive? How does he do that? By giving us a living heart. He circumcises the heart so that, as Deuteronomy said, we can love the Lord our God with all our heart and all our might. Right? We have the ability today to love God as we do because God has cut away the stoniness of our hearts and made us alive. That's what he's saying there. Okay? 
Romans 2.28 says, For he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. Understand that? He's not a Jew who's one outwardly. Say, oh, now listen, I'm not saying we should hate the Jews. This is not an anti-Semitic sermon. We shouldn't hate anybody. What I'm saying is they are not God's covenant people today. You and I are. And spiritually speaking, I'm more Jewish, and I'll say it over and over again, than Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel. You know why? His circumcision is of the flesh. Mine is of the heart. It's inward. So spiritually, I am a child of Abraham. He is, in the words of Jesus, a child of the devil. Remember when the Pharisees said, Abraham's our father, Abraham's our father. He said, you're your father of the devil? If you were of Abraham, you'd believe me. The physical act of circumcision has no value today in terms of honoring God or keeping a covenant. Galatians 5, 6, for in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision by faith, by faith which worketh by love. Paul said that circumcision was a sign of a promise to the fathers and Christ fulfilled that sign. Uh, let's see here. Let's turn to Colossians chapter 2. I wasn't going to have you turn there, but I think I'll have you turn there real quick. Colossians 2.11. What are you reading there? Let me read you Romans 15.8. Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. Understand that. Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers. What promise was made to the fathers? I will come and circumcise your heart that you may love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your might. Christ made that possible. He confirmed that the promises made to the fathers were true. He fulfilled the law, and he brought about the fulfillment of circumcision. Colossians 2.11, and, and, and verse 13 also. So we'll do 11 and do 13. In whom also you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Verse 13, and you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. If you are saved, you are circumcised in the covenant community of Christ by the heart. That's why you're believed, because he cut away that stony heart and gave you a heart of flesh. That stony heart could never. What was the problem with Israel? They could never obey. They could never keep themselves from going after the sins of the nations. You know why? They had stony hearts. Sky, turn around and stop waving at people. Thank you. They had stony hearts. So they couldn't obey from the inside. That's why they had to obey from the outside. The tablets of stone, the law. What do we have today? The law written on our hearts. We can obey from the heart. We can do what Israel could never do. Which, by the way, church, is why we should look at sin very seriously. They had an excuse. We don't have the inward work of the Spirit. We don't have that excuse. We have the inward work of the Spirit. We should not be playing around in sin as they did. 
That's a very serious warning. Turn to Jeremiah 31, 31. Circumcision pointed to a future event that has already taken place, namely the institution of a new and better covenant. This was prophesied by the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31, 31. The Bible says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they, which covenant, which my covenant they break, although I was a husband to them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it on their, write it on their heart, inward parts and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall uh, teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. The greatness of the new covenant, church, over the old covenant, is that everybody in the covenant is a believer. That's what makes it superior. See, in the old covenant, you became a covenant member at birth, and then you had to be taught to know the Lord. But here, the new covenant, everyone who is in the covenant knows the Lord. Because they're saved. So they're part of the Christian community. Now, unsaved people can be part of the church, right? The, the visible church. They can, be, they can be a professing believer and be part of the visible covenant community and not truly be part of the new covenant. You understand that, right? See, the Protestant says, well, if they're there and they're singing the songs and they're participating in the service, then they should be baptized and made part of the visible covenant. That's not the new covenant. That's the old covenant. Okay? That's the old covenant. They are false believers who will eventually be cut off. You hear that? Eventually be cut off. If that's you, repent and get saved. Circumcision in the Old Testament pointed to the circumcision of the heart that would come under the new covenant. Those who received it were identified as part of the covenant community looking forward to spiritual circumcision. So what is the sign of the covenant in the New Testament? The argument would be baptism, of course. Baptism. Just baptize everybody who's born in a Christian family and they're part of the covenant and then some get saved and some don't. Then it's not a better covenant. Then it's the same covenant. Just less knives involved. For it to be a better covenant, all those in it must be believers. So what's the sign of the covenant in the New Testament? Anybody know? I'll tell you. I'm ready. You guys ready? Yes. I think a biblical case can be made. The sign of the covenant in the New Testament is a changed heart and life. That's how you identify a covenant member today. They have the heart cut away and they have the heart of flesh. So when you see somebody who says, I'm a Christian, they never go to church, never read their Bible, cuss like a sailor, watch dirty movies. You can look at them with some authority and say, you are not a Christian. You are not a part of the new covenant. You are dead in trespasses and sins. The sign of the covenant today, I believe biblically, is a new creation in Christ. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things become new. We identify covenant members by their fruit, by their lifestyle. That's how we identify them. 
The key to this definition is found in how you define covenant community. Again, you enter the new covenant by trusting in Christ, by being a Christian. Under the old covenant, we see that God had an, an ethnic covenant people. Everyone of that ethnic group benefited from their relationship with God. All males took the sign of the circumcision, whether or not they were actually saved. The new covenant is not administered in the same way. It's not with an ethnic group, but rather with a particular people. All who call upon his name are part of this new covenant. While the old covenant was with the ethnic seed of Abraham, the new covenant is with the seed of Christ. You can be the seed of Abraham without being saved, but you cannot be the seed of Christ without being saved. Do you get that difference? The only people in the covenant today are saved people, and the outward sign of being in the covenant is a circumcised heart, which leads to a changed life for a new person. I don't believe, biblically, we can get to baptism as a sign of the new covenant. For the reasons I just outlined to you. Now, having attacked their philosophical argument, let's look at their scriptural argument. There's a couple of arguments I, I've gotten over the years from my many friends who are infant baptizers. I want to look at those in context to see, does it hold biblical weight? I think you'll see it doesn't hold biblical weight. Most of these verses are wildly out of context. Put the scripture in context when you share it. Don't build doctrines on out-of-context verses. Number one, go to Acts 8.12. Acts chapter 8, verse 12. We're going to cover five arguments as fast as I can. Acts 8.12. But when they believed, Philip, preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God... And the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So Philip takes the gospel to the Samaritans, and they get saved. They get baptized, both men and women, it says. The point made in this verse is focused on the both men and women comments being made. Paedo-Baptists will say that since only males receive the sign of the covenant in the Old Testament... Well, now it's saying, see, it's open to everybody, both male and female. The problem with that interpretation is it presupposes that baptism is the new sign of the covenant, identical to circumcision. And as the case I just made in the scriptures, that's a, a stretch of the imagination to get to. So you presuppose baptism being the sign, then you drop that presupposition into the text and say, see, it's very clear. It says men and women. That was a new thing because it was only men before. Therefore, it was, it's baptism. That's not what it says. You know who gets baptized here? Those who believe his preaching. Yes. Not babies. Yes. Not babies. In the very text itself. If you just take the text for what it says, you cannot get infant baptism. You get credo baptism. They heard, they believed, and they were baptized. So basically, they make up this interpretation, and then they go, well, gee, look at that. The sign is expanded from just men to men and women and babies. They're not mentioned, but they're, they're, they're there too, you know. Listen, there may be a statement in this verse on equality of salvation, right? No male, no female. We're all one in Christ. 
But there's no mention of babies being sprinkled here at all. There's no mention of baptism being a continuation of circumcision. There's no mention of the new covenant having the exact same administration as the old covenant. None of that. All we see is the gospel is preached. People hear and believe and are baptized. And a group of Protestants in 21st century America sit around and go, oh, gee, look at that. Babies are there, too. They're not. If the scripture alone is our guide and church scripture alone should be our guide, there's no babies here. Or within the believing community, there's no babies here. Argument number two, go to Acts chapter 16, verse 33. This is the the favorite one, I think. The Philippian jailer. You guys remember how he went home and baptized all his babies? I don't either. Acts 16, verse 33. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized, he and all his straightway. Well, there we go. I've actually had people tell me that. They've read that verse. They stop and go, well, Rick, there you go. Him and all of his. This is how quiet I am when they say that. Him and all his what? His household. Okay. And there must have been babies in his household. Really? Maybe. I don't know. Doesn't say that, does it? He was, he, he was baptized, he and all his straight way. My first response is to point out the Bible never says there were babies in his household. This is a complete assumption being made out of silence. What if the jailer was like me today? I have no babies right now in the household. I'm 41 years old. He's but he was, he was probably young enough to have babies. He was, he was young enough to have a job. So am I. No babies up there right now. Haven't been. For years now. What if he was like Art? You know, Art and Olivia have a household. No babies live there. He's a strapping young man with a job. What if he was the jailer? Do you see what presupposing in the text does? It makes it into a fairy tale. What does the Bible actually say? It does say all those in his household. I'll give him that. So let, let's, let's hold that in your mind for a minute. We'll come back to it. What if he was like Jason? He has a household with a wife and a son who's out of college. Could the jailer have had Grown kids? Could have. I mean, if we're going to play with the text and say, well, he must have had babies, well, he must have had an Aunt Ida living in North America. Where do we stop it at? The text doesn't say it. All of his house could mean one or two others. Could mean fully grown. Could mean teenagers, children, or no children. It doesn't have to mean infants. They're building a doctrine off a completely made-up narrative. The Bible does not teach. False doctrine often hinges on adding to the text. You understand that, right? So often you find false doctrine, and they have truth, but it's been added to something else, diluted a little bit. What does the Bible say? 
That should be our standard, church. What does the Bible say? We shouldn't read into a passage what we want to be there. In the verse before this one, we see that Paul preached the gospel. So let's go back to verse 33 again. Okay. He took them, the jailer, took them the same night, the same hour of the night, washed their stripes and was baptized. He and all his straightway. So we're going to concede for a minute. Everyone in his household was baptized. Go back to 32. And they spake unto him, this is Paul and Silas to the jailer, the word of the Lord, and to all who were in his house. They preached the gospel to everyone in his house. I've tried preaching the gospel to an infant. They just spit up on me. Look at verse 34 now. When he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. So you take 33 by itself, well, his whole house is baptized. There must have been babies there. You, you start this, you know, once upon a time, a land far away, there was this baby. But you take the scripture, what does the Bible say? They preached the gospel to him and everyone in his house. They baptized him and everyone in his house. And he believed as well as did everyone in his house. Meaning everyone in his house must have been of an age and reason of mind to believe the gospel that was preached. Scripture alone. What does the Bible say? This passage in context, again, supports credo-baptism. If there were babies in his house, they were not counted as part of the household. Since babies cannot hear the gospel, believe the gospel, and then be baptized. See, you cut out the hearing and the believing, and you just put them in the baptizing verse. That is not how we interpret the Bible. Argument number three. Go to Acts 2.39. You're doing great on time. Most of you don't care what time it is. I can keep preaching. You all you can go home if you get tired. I live right over here. I'll make girls stay. <laughs> Acts 2.39. This is the second biggest argument I hear all the time. The Bible says, For the promise is unto you and to your children, and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Proponents of infant baptism will point out that Peter says the promise is to them and to their children. There you go. I'm part of a group on Facebook where there's a lot of Presbyterian people. Bless their hearts. I, I love Presbyterians. I've heard some great Presbyterian preachers. I just don't think they should be baptizing babies. But some guy put on there on Facebook, but all he put was, the promise is to you and to your children, the Bible, enough said. And I thought, what a bozo. Using the Bible out of context and then saying enough said. No, no, no. Read the whole passage before you say enough said. Can I say bozo from the pulpit? I'm sorry, church. It's not in my notes, I promise. I just, I think it, I think it fits, right? Jesus called Herod a fox. I think Jesus would be okay with a bozo. Anyways, 
Just like the previous two passages, this one also teaches credo-baptism. The verse before it gives us the order of events. Verse 38, repent, then be baptized. Then Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So what did Peter mean in verse 39 about their children? Look what the verse says. Peter said the promise was to them. Who's them? The Jews. To their children. Children of the Jews. To all that are far off. Who's that? That's usins, right? That's the Gentiles. Peter then says, to as many as the Lord will call. The promise is not to every one of those groups. Is it? Or we have to be universalists. If the promise is to all the Jews, all the Jews' children, and all that are far off, then they're all saved. But no, then Peter says, to as many as the Lord our God shall call of the Jews, of your children, of those who are far off. That's the context. The promise is to those who believe and are part of the new covenant, not to all people. And you say, how, do you, how would that make us a universalist? I had a, a friend of mine actually, had, well, see, Ray Kimber said, that, that wouldn't make us universalist. That just means that they're all part of the covenant community. That's not what the promise is. What's the promise? Verse 38, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost is the promise. And he's promised to who? Well, the Protestant says, all children of believers are in the covenant. But not all are saved. Well, there's a problem with that, though. The Holy Ghost is the promise. How can they be promised the Holy Ghost and not be saved? Then Jesus has to break the promise if they're not saved. Or it's not really a promise. No. The promise stands firm to all of the Jews, of their children, of the Gentiles, whom the Lord shall call. They are promised the Holy Spirit. Context matters in these things. Argument number four. Go to Mark chapter 10. This one's a lesser used argument, but I've heard it before, so I thought it was worth mentioning in case you hear it at some point. Mark 10, 13. The Bible says, and they brought young children to him, that's to Jesus, that he should touch them. And his disciples rebuked those that brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was much displeased and said to them, Suffer the little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. And he took them up in his arms and put his hands upon them and blessed them. Now the passage says young children, not babies necessarily. He says to allow them to come and don't forbid them. I had a, saw a guy post this on Facebook again. Posted a picture of him and his wife baptizing their baby. Well, sprinkling their baby. He wasn't calling it baptizing, right? Just sprinkling their baby. And he, he put on above it the caption. He said, uh, uh, what did he say? He said, I don't want to misquote it. Suffer little children, come unto me and forbid them not. That's wholly different than bringing them when they're unaware of where they're at. He says, don't stop them from coming to me. But that, didn't, that seems to invoke the idea that they know what they're doing. That's what he's saying. 
A similar passage in Luke does include infants. Luke 18.15, they brought him unto him also infants, that he would touch them, but when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. The problem with using this for infant baptism is simply this. They asked him to bless the infants. We don't see them becoming baptized as part of the covenant community. Well, first of all, Jesus hadn't died yet. So the covenant sign was still circumcision, not, not baptism. And since Jesus doesn't mention baptism in that passage, you're reading a concept from later on in the Bible back into that verse that's not there. That's dangerous, okay? The little children he's talking about, he's saying, don't forbid them to come to me. That is wholly and entirely different than bringing babies who don't know what they're doing. That's not what Jesus was saying. Another problem. The context here is not the sign of the covenant. It's how we enter the covenant. He's using the babies and the little children as an example and says we must become like them to enter the kingdom of God. Childlike faith is the context, not infant baptism. We must have childlike faith to become part of the new covenant. Not the sign of the covenant. That's not in view here. Argument five is the last one of the arguments. And I got about a page and a half of conclusion. Just kidding. Argument five. First Corinthians 10, verse one and two. We're back to the baptism into Moses verse again. This is the third most common argument I hear from Protestants. First Corinthians 10, one through two. Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So the argument for infant baptism here comes from the statement that the fathers were all baptized into Moses and since the fathers carry the seed, all of their children who would come from them were also baptized. Therefore you have infant baptism. They import this argument from another passage, Hebrews 7 verse 9. Go there. Hebrews 7, verse 9. Again, they're importing an argument from somewhere else in the Bible, dropping it into a text that's not talking about the same thing, and applying it the same way. Dangerous way to interpret the Bible. Hebrews 7, verse 9. And as I may say also, or as I may so say, Levi also, who received tithes, paid tithes in Abraham, for he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Okay? The problem with this interpretation is fourfold. Number one, that conclusion is not stated in the text. It is in Hebrews. It's not in 1 Corinthians. You're completely in, bringing in a foreign concept and dropping it onto a passage that does not state that is the application. That is a dangerous way to interpret the Bible. You can only come to it by reading it into the passage. In that passage, we're told that since Levi was in the loins of Abraham when he paid tithes in Melchizedek, therefore Levi paid tithes. This is the same concept by which we get original sin. Since we were all in the loins of Adam when Adam sinned, we are all guilty of sin. Romans chapter 5. And it's said here of Levitical tithing, but where the Bible is silent, we should be silent. That's my time limit. It's up. Praise the Lord that uh, Melissa has no authority here. 
we wouldn't hold a child accountable for murder if his father committed murder before he was born, would we? Well, he was in the loins of his father before when the murder was committed. Therefore, he's, no, we wouldn't. It's explicitly stated of Adam. It's explicitly stated of Levi. It is not explicitly stated in 1 Corinthians. Therefore, we're reading concepts into that passage that do not exist in that passage. That is false interpretation. Go back to 1 Corinthians 10. A second problem with interpretation is baptism. Would in, if we use that passage for baptism, it would favor immersion, not sprinkling. Remember, if the fathers were completely immersed under the ocean, the Red Sea, and the fathers were completely immersed in the cloud, the children were too. This is not an argument for infant sprinkling. This would be an argument for infant immersion, which leads to drowning. You don't want to do that. Number three. A water baptism interpretation here would need support pedo communion to be consistent. Now, we say, what is that? Well, pedo baptism means baby baptizing. Pedo communion would be giving communion to babies. 99% of people I know who are infant baptizers do not believe in pedo communion. I know of one church that practices it. And as much as I disagree with them, I applaud them for being consistent. Right? Look at verses 3 and 4. And, all, and did all eat the same spiritual meat, and did all drink the same spiritual drink, for the drink of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. That's communion language. Spiritual eat food, spiritual drink. If the fathers being baptized meant their babies were all baptized, then the connection to, the, cannot, to communion cannot be ignored. It cannot be applied differently. If you're going to be for pedo-baptism, you must be for pedo-communion to be consistent. And problem number four of this argument is water baptism is not in view in the context. The context is they followed Moses and took part in the rescue, the protection, the water, the food, yet they sinned and turned away from God in unbelief, demonstrating they never truly believed. Go to verse 5. But with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples to the intent that we should baptize our baby. No, that's not what it says, right? So what is the example? It tells us, here's why I'm giving you this example. This is why I'm giving it to you. Ready? Not to baptize babies but to not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Neither be idolaters as, some of them, as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. The danger was for, uh, for some of them to make profession of faith, partake of spiritual things, and ultimately make shipwreck of their faith. That's what Paul's warning against. He's warning, he's saying, don't, don't be like them. They were under the cloud. They were under the Red Sea. They ate the, the, the food, they ate the drink, and they took, they took part in spiritual things, and then they turned away from God and were destroyed. 
Don't do the same thing, Christian. Don't take part in spiritual things and then turn back to the world. That's the warning of the passage. That's the clear meaning of the context. Baptism is not even in view. Ask yourself, when you read the Bible, what would the original readers have gotten from this text? They would not have gotten baptism. They would not have looked at it and gone, oh, boy, we should be baptizing our babies then. No. And Paul says, the reason I'm giving you this example is that you won't do the same things they did. Verse 11. Now all these things happen unto them for examples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world or the ages are come. When you import baptism there, you're just as guilty as the Roman Catholics are with John chapter 6. Right? What are they doing in John 6? You got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Oh, transubstantiation communion. The problem is, he hadn't even given them communion yet. That was at the Passover before he died. He said, this is my body, this is my this cup, this is my blood. The people who heard him say that in John 6 would have had no clue about communion at all. They would never have gotten that. Not until after the Passover. So what we're doing is we're taking a concept over here and we're dropping it on over here. When it couldn't possibly mean that. The sin of those in the wilderness professing faith only, only to turn back was an example to those Paul was writing to. There is a valid picture going on here. The church age began at Pentecost, but the Jewish age didn't end until 40 years later in 70 AD. This is the church's time in the wilderness. There's a lot of wandering, a lot of learning, a lot of growing. And he's saying, don't turn back. Don't turn back after partaking of spiritual things. Don't do what Israel did. Conclusion. This is on the back of your prayer list if you have one. Infant baptism is not an early church practice. It began around the 4th century. Early documents like the Didache support this, demonstrate this. Remember the Didache? I mentioned it last week. One of the earliest Christian documents. It's not inspired, but it's a glimpse into how the church functioned. Sometime is written between 70 and 100 AD. And what does it say about baptism? It says they had to make a profession of faith. They had to fast before and after their baptism. This is a person who is able to make a profession of faith in Christ. This is not an infant. Even John Calvin, who was an infant baptizer, states that the ancients baptized by immersion, meaning the early church. The early church. The scriptures used to defend infant baptism are often out of context. Do you notice how many of those passages I gave you? If you put it back in context, the passage actually teaches credo baptism, believer's baptism. We need to be resolute about using the scripture in context. What is this passage talking about? Not what does this verse say to prove my point, but what is the passage talking about? What would the first readers have understood? What would the hearers have understood? The philosophical argument falls short when you understand the nature of the New Covenant. The New Covenant is not like the Old Covenant. It's better than the Old Covenant. 
It's not made with one people group. It's made with the world. And those who are in the covenant are believers. And the sign, all right, I'll give it to you. The sign is still circumcision of the heart. Not sprinkling with water, but of the heart. It's a better covenant. If it's administered the same way, it's the same covenant. It's not better. I believe, that, I believe wholeheartedly that my brothers and sisters in Christ who believe that are wrong. I cannot come to the scripture. And I've read, believe me, I, keep, I, I know several people who've become infant baptizers by reading the Puritan writings and that. I've read the Puritan, a lot of the Puritan writings. And they make great arguments. They're very well spoken. But when I read their arguments, that is a great argument. But the Bible says differently. And I have to stay here. My conscience is bound here. Not in what people, good people are wrong on this issue. I love R.C. Sproul, but he was wrong on this issue. I love Doug Wilson. He's wrong on this issue. A great many people, John Calvin was wrong on this issue. Martin Luther was wrong on this issue. It don't be too hard on them. They just come out of Rome. They didn't fix everything all at once. But I believe if you take the Bible, and the Bible alone is your standard, you'll be a believer's baptism person, a credo baptist. Men like George Mueller, if you read his autobiography, he was raised and baptized as a baby, raised in the Church of England, had a time where he took the Bible and put his other books aside and just took the Bible and, and read from Genesis Revelation about baptism. And he came to the conclusion, it's by profession of faith, by immersion. If the Bible alone is our standard, we can't baptize infants. Some people say, why are you a Baptist? Why does your church do that? There's a strong basis in the, in the Bible for us to have. This is not just tradition. You say, oh, you're only against it because that's you were raised Baptist. I was against it at one time for that reason. But today I'm against it because I've read the Bible. And I'm convinced wholeheartedly from Scripture, baptism is by immersion of believers who are in the new covenant and the sign of being in that covenant is a changed heart, a circumcised heart. That Old Testament circumcision didn't point ahead to infant baptism. It pointed ahead to the new heart, the new life, the changed nature. And that's where I stand. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you. We thank you again for tonight, the wonderful baptism we had earlier. As I said, I don't want to convey the wrong feelings for any of my friends who may watch this. I, I love them dearly, and I count them as brothers in Christ but I believe they're wrong. I have no doubt. I am 100% solid. The Bible teaches believer's baptism by immersion. But Lord, help us as a church never to be dogmatic on a doctrine because of our tradition. May it always be what saith the scripture. And if it's not in the Bible, it shouldn't be taught in our pulpit. We love you. We thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for Joe 
and Mike. And just a few days I've known them, the blessing they brought to my heart. Dismiss us now with your blessing, your love, your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.